welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Hello, everybody. This week's episode is a live show. It's a talk I gave at Rose City Comic Con, which is Portland's big comics convention. I have been giving comics-related talks there for the past three years. I always really enjoy it. I'm really happy they had me back again this year. Hope to be back there again next year doing a similar talk. Yeah, had a great time. Uh, A few things. One, this is a live show, so it has, you know, live show audio quality. That's just how it goes. It's going to be a little echoey. You'll hear a bit of the audience. All that really can't be avoided. Uh, The other thing is that I was doing this with visual aids, and throughout the talk, you'll hear me refer to different visual aids. If you want to follow along, I have linked to the presentation deck that I used during this show over at weirdhistorypodcast.com. So yeah, you can see what everybody else saw. Just go to the page for this episode, click the thing, and well, it won't be like you were there, but you know, it'll be approximately like that. Uh, Anyway, enjoy the episode, and here we go. First off, thank you again for coming, and thank you for bearing with us through all the technical stuff. Um, I wanted to start today by asking, um, how many Portland natives are here? Okay, excellent. Uh, How many folks have been to the Portland Art Museum? Okay. Do you know the big sculpture in front of the Portland Art Museum? The big multicolored one that looks, you know, green and yellow and white and kind of stripy? All right, well, you would probably recognize it uh, if you saw it. It uh, looks sort of like this. Yeah, and it is a sculpture of brush strokes. It's done by an artist called Roy Lichtenstein, who was probably the second most influential pop artist uh, in the United States after Andy Warhol. And today, I want to talk to you about... Roy Lichtenstein's influences, I feel like, is maybe the right but also wrong word to use. Um, Where he got his ideas and his images from, what that netted him, and who got left out um, of basically tons and tons of money um, while he was becoming famous, uh, famous and rich and influential. Anyways, let's talk about what pop art is. Uh, long ago in the before time, like the 1800s and before that, uh, you had art that was about uh, set subjects like Jesus and Napoleon and really, really important things. Every so often you'd have still lifes and portraits and that kind of stuff, but it was all really figurative until the 20th century in which we finally got Expressionism. This is a work of what is known as Abstract Expressionism. It's red. It's by a guy called Mark Rothko. He's from Portland. He went to my high school. His paintings are red. <laughs> and I know it looks really boring to us today, but at the time that was a very big deal because it's a solid break from a lot of art history that came before that. It's not necessarily painting, you know, big important things like Jesus or Napoleon. You're painting ideas, you're painting feelings. You want somebody to think about something and feel something as opposed to just, like, glorifying a rich person who's going to, like, pose as Venus and then they're on a fresco or something like that. 
So that was actually really revolutionary when it happened. But in the early 20th century, abstract expressionism itself kind of became the man, the thing that everybody wanted to rebel against. Because it doesn't really show anything. It's kind of boring. It is, it's abstract. So people start painting other stuff. Things that you see every day out there in the world. Y'all have probably seen this before. I know the image is small, but can you make out what it is? It's a bunch of Campbell's soup cans, absolutely, from Andy Warhol, probably the most famous pop artist ever. And a lot of these pop artists thought instead of just painting feelings or ideas or the color red, we are going to paint what people see on a daily basis like Campbell's soup cans. Now, there's a couple of different reasons for this. There is the kind of like shitty ironic reason. By the way, I will say bad words on this panel. So if you're a small child... Like, I don't know, it's a learning experience for you. There's like this shitty ironic reason where you want to mock consumer culture and make fun of it. Um, but there's also more sort of democratic reasons. Uh, when people talk about Warhol, I think they kind of sometimes over-ironize him. They think that he was being, you know, more sort of like trickstery than he actually was. Uh, Andy Warhol painted soup cans for a lot of reasons. But one of the big reasons is because he really fucking liked Campbell's soup. Uh, he was from a poor Eastern European immigrant family. And he loved the idea that you could just go to the store and there was soup. That was not an experience he had growing up. And he ate it on a regular basis. And he thought that this like abundance of soup was worthy of like artistic study. Also, when he said in the future everybody will have 15 minutes of fame, he wasn't being like cute or ironic or postmodern. He thought being famous was awesome and that if everybody could have a little bit of it, that would be kind of a cool thing. So there's that sort of aspect of pop art that's sort of very democratic and saying like all the stuff that's out there is actually worthy of being looked at, which is cool. And then there's also the other aspect of pop art, which is typified by this guy who I'm going to talk a lot about on this panel today, because this guy is the guy who painted comics. Uh, he is a fellow named Roy Lichtenstein, and he is the other pop artist who's not Andy Warhol. He was born in 1923 in New York City. Uh, he came from a sort of privileged dish background. His dad was a real estate broker. His mom did mom stuff because it was back before, like, Women could have jobs on a regular basis and all that. Uh, and he did go to a fairly privileged prep school called Dwight Academy, which was supposed to take, like, young dudes and... Uh, yes? Oh, I'll tell you were going to say something. Oh, okay. Which was basically supposed to take, like, young dudes and turn them into, like, college-bound guys from New York or Boston or Connecticut or whatnot. Uh, while he was at this prep... He went to this prep school. Later on, he went to Ohio State... And while he was at Ohio State, he caught the eye of one of his professors. And this art professor took him under his wing and said, this kid has talent. Uh, Lichtenstein was also an aspiring musician. Most of his earliest images were images of musicians, people playing the clarinet or trombone or that kind of thing. Um, then he moved to Cleveland. He apparently hated it because it was Cleveland. Um, but that's where he got work as a draftsman and a window decorator. 
um, because Cleveland, he moved back to New York City in 1957 and he got a job teaching art. And for a while, he tooled around in abstract expressionism, you know, doing the thing where you paint red and stuff like that. And he was not successful at it. However, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, he started experimenting with painting something else. While Warhol was painting cans of soup, this guy was working on something else people saw in their everyday lives. Cartoon characters. Okay, good. It's a Mickey one. Yeah. Uh, Lichtenstein did a whole bunch of studies of cartoons and comics uh, while he was trying to break as an artist. And most of those, unfortunately, uh, we don't have anymore. When lots of interviews he's given, he says that he's destroyed them because he didn't like them. He finally hit it big with a painting of a comic, this one, which is called Hey Mickey. And for those of you who can't, say, uh, can't see it, it says, Hey Mickey, I think I've hooked a big one. It's Mickey and Donald and they're fishing. Yeah. He also did studies of, he also did paintings of Popeye. Yeah, there's the Popeye one. Uh, very much in the same style as the Hey Mickey one. And uh, advertisements. This is another famous early Liechtenstein. It's called Girl with Ball. It's pretty self-explanatory. And this stuff was a huge hit. This early stuff of Mickey and Popeye and a girl with a ball, it looked different. It didn't look like your standard pictures of, you know, Jesus or Napoleon or the like. It also wasn't one more picture of red, which galleries had been dealing with forever at that point. So this was pretty groundbreaking and also at the time pretty controversial because, hey, you're putting Mickey Mouse in an art gallery. But where is he getting this stuff? That's a very good question. Uh, this is the original version of that girl with ball painting. And it is an advertisement that he has basically expanded, traced, recolored, and turned into a painting. And basically all of Liechtenstein's sort of advertisement, comic-y type paintings came from originals like this. He would go through old magazines, he would go through comics pages, he would go through comic books. He would find something that, you know, struck him for some reason, and then he would blow it up and turn it into a painting. Uh, this is another famous uh, one of his. It's called Drowning Girl. And in this one, what is she saying? She's saying, I don't care. I'd rather sink than call Brad for help. <laughs> and she is drowning and looking very sad and, you know, it sucks to be her. Uh, drowning Girl is from 1963. And this is where we really see his comic booky looking style. We see the like pseudo bende dots, you know, those little dots that like made the colors in old comic books. You know, we see the bright colors. We see his really, really heavy black lines, which are kind of like an exaggeration of comics lines. Uh, honestly, like, Roy Lichtenstein kind of reminds me of Mike Allred comics. No offense to Mike Allred. Um, but here's the thing. He got that from an old romance comic. You know, back when comics could be westerns and romance and... Well, I guess we still have that because Archie Comics continues to do great. But yeah, basically that image right there comes from an existing comic book. Uh, so, he's doing great, you know, selling things like Drowning Girl and Hey Mickey, but I haven't gotten to his biggest piece yet. That one's called Wham. Or Wham. Yeah, uh, you see a plane, it is shooting another plane that is blowing up, and you see in the corner, 
I press the fire control, and ahead of me, rockets blaze through the sky. Wham! Uh, this painting was big, both literally and metaphorically. Uh, it's big because it is this gigantic thing on two canvases. Uh, it's also big because when it hit, uh, because when it hit the art world, it was extremely controversial that you would put an image like this in a gallery. And this was huge. Uh, it sold less than three years after it debuted in 1963 to the Tate Modern. Now, here's the thing. Uh, this image right here of these two airplanes, uh, one of which is exploding the other one, it also comes from a comic book. Here is the original. And that original is really fucking similar. It is basically the same image. Also, you can see the same dialogue about pressing the fire button. There's another dialogue balloon that Lichtenstein left out that says the enemy has become a flaming star. And I'm wondering, like, why the hell would you leave that out? It's like a great bit of dialogue. It's so, like, overwrought and comic booksy and all of that. And, again, this is a big million-dollar piece of art based on uh, this comic panel right here. Now, when the Tate Modern bought this for millions and millions of dollars back in the 60s, they were buying something that was adapted from another pre-existing work. What was that other pre-existing work that this famous pop artist was basing stuff on? Oh, by the way, here is a picture of Lichtenstein. This is a still from a documentary. Uh, you probably can't see it. He is standing in front of... He is standing in front of Wham! And what he did is that he would uh, trace these panels. Then he would blow them up on, you know, the side of the wall. And then he would paint over that uh, projection and just make it make much bigger. This is an interview where he's uh, taking a look at his original sketches and saying, Oh, uh, there's a line down the middle. I must have cribbed that from two different comic books. I must have found an airplane here and an explosion over there and put them together. That is not what happened. That is not what he did. He cribbed them from one comic book, uh, this one. Yeah, this one from DC, which is called All American Fighting Men, one of the most influential issues of comics that nobody has ever heard of. Like, I had never heard of All American Fighting Men before I started delving into this. Um... This was done by, this was written by Bob Haney, Hank Chapman, and Robert Kaniger. And if you guys have heard of Bob Haney before, he was a DC Comics writer back in the 60s, and his stories are banana pants. Uh, he did a whole bunch of D, uh, Teen Titans type stuff. If you want to read a story about a giant who can remove his ears and eyes and send them to spy on teenagers, Bob Haney did that. <laughs> Uh, it's also got pencils by guys called Irv Novick and Russ Heath. This image right here, or Wham, was done by Irv Novick, but we'll get to Russ Heath in a, uh, a minute. When, did, uh, when Lichtenstein picked up this issue, which he must have had at his house somewhere, he got multiple images from it. Not only Wham, but another one called Blam. Here's Blam. It is yet another airplane. This was done by Russ Heath, another different artist. And there's his original. Yeah, right there. Right there on the side, you can see the airplane that got turned into blam. Uh, also, because uh, dialogue from either Bob Haney or Hank Chapman or Robert Kaniger ended up on both or ended up on Wham, he was also kind of ripping off them. 
Now, I really hope it was because, like, that's their writing that's in that panel and on that painting. Now, I kind of hope it's Bob Haney because, again, he was a Banana Pants comics writer. And I would like to believe that, like, two lines of his dialogue are now in Fancy Art Museum. So this, uh, these, oh, and there's another one. He also did a picture of a pilot, uh, which I don't have in this PowerPoint presentation, that also got adapted into another different painting. So not one, not two, but three different paintings from this random DC Comics, you know, war comic. In all of these instances, like, the guys who made these images did not get credit. And keep in mind, they didn't get credit from DC Comics either. Uh, this was back in the age when you wrote a comic, you got paid for it, and your credit doesn't really appear anywhere in it. Uh, one of the things that Marvel Comics did in the 60s, say what you will about Stan Lee, uh, his insistence on putting his own name, along with everybody else's names on the cover of the insides of the comics, was actually pretty important. It meant people were actually finally getting some credit for their work, even, though Stan, even if Stan Lee's name was the biggest one. But he is doing this again and again. He is making more of these images. And his big sort of like pop art moment where he's like drawing these comics and turning them into paintings, it's actually pretty quick. Oh, here he is from another uh, documentary where he's slicing up an old Flash comic. And I remember watching that interview with him and I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? Like those comics that you have from the 60s, like on the collection market, they've got to be worth like more than nothing. Anyway... His time period where he is uh, cribbing from comics is actually fairly quick. It's during the 1960s, from 1961 to about 1966, 1967. But during that time, he establishes his signature style with the bende dots, with the heavy black lines, with the vivid colors, with all of that. And later on, he decides to uh, adapt other things, like Picasso. So when he adapts Picasso... The art world goes kind of apeshit about that. Because it's one thing to adapt comic books and rip them off. But to adapt Picasso, uh, that's another thing. Like Picasso, he's like an art god. Uh, he also adapted Van Gogh pieces or Van Gogh, if you're a non-English speaker and or British. Um, and I found that like particularly strange that there was such a bad reaction to his Picasso and Van Gogh uh, adaptations, given that Picasso himself was a copier. Picasso would take stuff from other artists, from earlier artists, and just refashion it and Picassoify it. However, if you're talking about Picasso, you're talking about somebody who is like really fundamentally transforming it into cubes. You could also talk about how Picasso saw a whole bunch of like non-Western art, like African and South American art, and turned that into cubism, and that also made him a copyist, but again, can't copy Picasso. So this was a bad move for Lichtenstein. He eased up on that a little bit and went into another style that's basically collage. So he really, really leaned into the comics look and started creating these images that have these pseudo-Bendai dots all over him with some recognizable characters like Dagwood Bumstead here. Uh, he created the Bendai dots by painting over bubble wrap, putting the bubble wrap on a blank surface, ripping it off, and then collaging all of that into something with uh, this recognizable character. And I'm a bit more charitable to this image with Dagwood and the uh, Bende dots, because I think this is more obviously transformative. Like, this, you wouldn't mistake this for a panel of Blondie. This looks like Dagwood Bumstead artified. And his other favorite subject, paint. 
like paint strokes themselves. So here you have all the bende dots and like a paint stroke on it, and he is using paint to paint paint. I just blew your mind, man. <laughs> and it's the paint strokes that I think he was probably most successful with. There's that big sculpture out in front of the Portland Art Museum that is of the brush strokes with the bende dots on them. And when it comes to artists who are like selling all of these things as basically like they are commodities, they are financial products, uh, this is what he moved the most. If you're a really obscenely rich person who owns a Lichtenstein, it probably looks more like this than like Wham or Blam or even a Dagwood back there. Now what you're probably thinking also is that all artists steal all artists like swipe from each other. Uh, this is one of my favorite little instances of artistic stealing. This is Rosie the Riveter by Norman Rockwell. And Rosie the Riveter by Norman Rockwell is next to the prophet Isaiah from the Sistine Chapel. And once I learned that, I could never unsee it. Uh, but again, this is obviously transformative. Nobody is going to mistake Rosie for Isaiah right there. Like, nobody is going to mistake, uh, can't touch this, for Super Freak. Those are both very, very different songs. And when MC Hammer took the riff from Super Freak, he made something new and beautiful and perfect on its own. He wasn't simply pretending to be Rip James. He probably was a little bit, but no, different thing. Lichtenstein, however, was not doing that. In Lichtenstein's case, I listened to a lot of interviews from this guy. I watched a whole bunch of documentaries about this guy. And I really thought that as I dove into him, I would learn to like him. I would meet the real Roy Lichtenstein. I would get into somebody who actually had a great deal of admiration for comics and comics art and pop culture. And that is not what happened. Uh, he likes to talk about the stuff that he copied uh, as having a kind of anti-sensibility. He liked to talk about it as being empty or exaggerated, or not saying very much. A lot of the irony that people uh, think that Warhol had, Lichtenstein actually did have. He didn't think that the stuff out there that he was painting was really all that interesting, and he thought he was making it interesting. He was elevating it. In all these interviews of him that I watched and listened to, I thought, please name just one comics artist. Just one. While you're talking about people that you're stealing from, like, at least say their name once. It can be Jack Kirby. You can be, like, that cursory and basic. But after, like, listening to hours of this guy, none of it. And again, he kept coming back to that same thing about it was a sort of anti-sensibility. As you can imagine, a lot of comics artists didn't really like this. Uh, in 2013, there was an exhibition of, uh, in London of the original art that Roy Lichtenstein had swiped. So this London Museum, instead of displaying the Lichtensteins, they displayed the originals, blew up on canvases, and it was organized by Dave Gibbons, who is the co-creator of Watchmen. Uh, Dave Gibbons, actually, he said, he said of Wham! and Dave Gibbons here, this is a Dave Gibbons, uh, Gibbons image, and in the corner he is crediting Irv Novick, the original artist. He said, of Wham! I'm not convinced it is art. We have a term in the business called swiping. When you are stuck for an idea, you rifle through your comics, and you trace what somebody else has done. A lot of Lichtenstein's stuff is so close to the original that it actually owes a huge debt to the work of the original artist. 
But in music, for instance, you can't just whistle somebody else's tune, no matter how badly, without crediting or getting payment or getting payment to the original artist. Also, there's another issue here, which is the millions and millions of dollars that people paid for Lichtenstein's work. And there's also the implication that he's taking a consumer product, elevating it, and turning it into art. Here's the thing about the art world. Lots of really, really expensive paintings are not aesthetic products. Those are financial products. The vast majority of multi-thousand, multi-tens of thousands, multi-million dollar paintings that get sold don't get sold because people like the painting. People buy paintings because art is an easy place to put your money. Art retains value. Art can go up in value. Art can be lent to a museum. That can be considered a charitable donation. That is a tax write-off. It makes you look pretty impressive to other arrogant rich people if you're able to say that you own a Picasso or a Monet or a Manet or that kind of thing. Uh, one of the things that also kept bugging me throughout this project, where, again, I thought I would have a lot of great things to say about Roy Lichtenstein, sorry, one Roy Lichtenstein fan in the audience, um, was that I do not think that the art world has the moral authority to actually critique the comics art world because most of their business is business. Whereas in comics, most of their business is making stuff people will enjoy. Most of the sketches that get sold on the floor today and yesterday and the day before that at Rose City Comic Con are sold because people like them. People want to look at that picture of the Incredible Hulk in their den or their game room or their kitchen or whatever. It pleases them. Most of the art that gets sold at prominent auction houses is just a really good place to put a quarter million dollars. So, there is a little bit of a happy ending here. Uh, this is a comic about Russ Heath. And Russ Heath was one of those guys that... Roy Lichtenstein swiped from that DC comic I mentioned earlier, that comic All American, uh, you know, All American Men of War, and he was the guy who drew Blam, not Wham, but Blam. Like a lot of, like a lot of working artists, uh, Russ Heath got paid once for the work he did, and then he didn't get royalties, he didn't get credit, he didn't get you know anything like that that would you know keep him going. And towards the end of his life, he did have trouble paying for basic things like food and health insurance. Uh, this is a comic about how late in life he was having a hard time financially, so he gave up one of his small luxuries. He stopped drinking wine. It was not essential. Uh, it was not as important as food or medicine. And so that had to go. Meanwhile, however... Uh, some of his images that were in major art museums had sold for millions of dollars. And he had tried to contact Lichtenstein about that. He had tried to ask for credit or something, but he says in his comic, Roy Lichtenstein never even got him a drink. Later on, news about that reached the Hero Initiative, which is an organization that tries to raise money for comics creators who have basically been screwed over and screwed out of a whole lot of money and compensation and credit they should have had for their work and did help him out with his medical bills. In this comic, he says he buys his first bottle of wine in a long time. He enjoys the small luxury of drinking a glass while watching television. And he says, well, it looks like Roy Lichtenstein finally bought me that drink. 
Also, a lot of museums nowadays, uh, like the Tate Modern, when you go to their page about images like Wham! or Blam! will mention the original artist. So Irv Novick behind Wham! The Tate Modern does talk about how that was his image. Uh, it did get basically copied. And he does get credit after a fashion. Uh, even though Liechtenstein is still like the famous, you know, the big rich and famous one. Oh, by the way, also Liechtenstein, he's totally dead. He died in 1997. So if any of you guys want to send him hate mail after this presentation, I don't know, direct it upward or downward, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the other thing about this is that there is the implication uh, in, I think, a lot of pop art that if something is a commercial work, it is less of a work. Is that if you're doing something for a client or if you're doing it for money or if you're doing it for something that you don't entirely believe in, um, you are less of an artist or you are less of a writer. And one of the things that I want to say as like a tiny little sermon at the end, is that that's not the case. I've spent a lot of time uh, in my day job working in marketing, which is often terrible and soulless, and I'll be honest, I'd rather not do, do it. But uh, I'm a copywriter on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm not you know, writing about comic books or doing a podcast about weird history. And I have sat across from and worked with people who are working artists, and a lot of people who work in design firms or marketing firms or those types of things, they don't stop being writers or artists when they enter that design firm or their marketing firm. You are still a writer even if you're writing an ad. Uh, you're still an artist even if you're illustrating a commercial work. Uh, you're still a creative person even if you have been hired to create. Even if DC Comics wants to get you to make some war comic that they'll hit the stands and they'll make a quick buck off of, you still deserve credit for what you did. You still did that, even if DC Comics doesn't credit you, and even if Roy Lichtenstein doesn't credit you. Even if your work gets copied and reused by a millionaire, it is still your work. And even if a ver version of your image is hanging in the Tate Modern and you can't even pay your medical bills, you still created value. So if any of you in the audience today are, have that kind of job where you have to create every day and it's a horrible grind, I want you to know that you still matter. That is my absurd little sermon. Thank you all very much for coming and putting up with the technical issues. All right, folks, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, a few things I wanted to mention at the end here that I didn't mention in the live talk, uh, just how much Lichtenstein's paintings sold for. Uh, they sold for a lot. Uh, one of them sold for $43 million, which at the time was a record. And that painting was a copy of a comic strip. It was a painting of a man looking through a peephole, saying that he could see the entire room, but there was nobody there. And that was lifted from a daily comic strip, much to the chagrin of the comics artist who got copied and not credited and didn't get any part of that multi-million dollar sale. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing, this is just a small fact I learned about him while I was studying him. Dude had a four-hour workday. Being successful meant that he painted in the morning, and then at one o'clock, he quit for the day and spent rest of his time doing dad stuff. 
And frankly, that sounds great. And I wouldn't want to begrudge anybody that type of, you know, intensive working in the AM and then doing dad stuff in the PM type lifestyle. But, you know, spread the wealth, share it around, you know, credit people, cut them in, that kind of thing. Uh, anyways, thank you to everybody who came out to the talk. Uh, it was great seeing people there. I always love speaking in front of an audience. Uh, also, thank you to Rose City Comic Con for having me. Uh, it is always a good time talking there, and uh, I have developed a real affection for doing stuff at that show. Uh, and thank all of you who have asked me about our new funding model. Uh, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com, become a member, get instant access to members-only episodes. Yeah, do that whole thing. Also, go to Apple Podcasts, other networks, give the show rating and reviews, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Joe Streckert on Twitter. The show is Weird History Podcast on the Facebook. Do all that. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Can't touch this. 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 Can't touch this.